So, Bob, I have some emails from some patrons that I thought you might have some insights on. So I thought we would read those and respond to them. What do you say? Sounds good. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I'm Bob Gettle, your old friend from graduate school from way back when, 21 years ago, 20, when we finished. 21 years ago, we finished, and 23, 23 years, years ago, ago, we met. Cow. I don't like thinking about my life in such large chunks. You had a goatee back then. <laughs> I think I had a f- full beard. I no, no, no. I had a goatee, did I? Oh, maybe you did have a full beard. Yeah. Anyways, I'm your now mostly clean-shaven friend from graduate school and uh, also a therapist in practice here in Seattle. And, of course, you're wearing your Penn uh, shirt. Penn State. Penn State shirt. <laughs> Nit- Nittany Lions. Yes. And uh, just rubbing it in my face that you won the bowl game against UW last January. <laughs> so uh, And took my money, my marker. You still oh, have- six bucks, right? You owe yeah. me 12 bucks. Well... Uh, we'll see if they face each other again in a bowl bowl game this year. Um, all right. So uh, this w- first email is from patron Sean. Patron Sean says, I was accepted into a clinical mental health counseling program. I am curious if you have any advice on preparing for graduate school, like readings or advice that would help give someone an edge. My greatest anxiety is not doing well. I know my grades were not spectacular to begin with, so I am trying to prepare so I am ready. What do you think, Bob? Oh, poor guy. Yeah. I, the, honest to God, the first thought is take a deep breath. Yeah. Relax. Yeah. You're going to be fine. Yeah. How can we convince Sean that he's going to be fine? Because I don't know. Yeah. Well, as a professor in a program, what I right. can tell you is that m- most, if not all, of the classes are taught by therapists yeah who are let's just say on the touchy feely fuzz nice and fuzzy accommodating type of personality we're not talking about high power lawyers or or astrophysicists or anything you know it's not an episode of the apprentice exactly <laughs> yeah uh and the programs are not it's not rocket science no. you know you're, you're talking about look up the ethics of this issue or look up this theory and do your best to learn and integrate it. And think and, about yourself. Right. Where do you stand? Right. Right. Which you can, you can articulate with expert opinion because it's only your opinion and right. your stance and your history and how you feel. And so, you know, when we think about graduate school, you're like, oh, you know, it's like there's this whole paradigm of, the further up you go in the grades, the harder it gets, right? Hmm. Uh, and that's true in some fields, like if in math, for example. Yeah. You take math in the sixth grade, it's algebra or pre-algebra or something, and then it gets harder. You go to geometry, and then you go to trig, and then you go to calculus, and then you go to whatever's above calculus. Well, I, t- I took some of those classes at UW. And, um, What's above calculus? Uh, there's like theoretical math, and I can't remember what they call it, but it, it gets uh, more weird, essentially. <laughs> weird math. Yeah, I, I just remember being in, at UW taking a, like an advanced above calculus math class, and the instructor was obviously just a graduate student who loved math, who didn't sign up to be an instructor. That that was one of the lovely things about going to UW. Uh, maybe Penn State was similar in that, you know, you're a major research science organization who employs a lot of research science people. And as a part of the job, for whatever reason, you force these people to teach, even though they don't <laughs> They don't want to teach. They're, oh, yeah. <laughs> they're there to do research. They're, they're there to, uh, you know, further their career. And they, could, they couldn't care less about, couldn't care less? I always get that wrong. They couldn't care less about students and about teaching. And these people are selected for their research abilities, not their teaching abilities. Yeah. And so this guy is, it's a pretty big, it's a medium-sized hall. So it's probably like capacity of... I don't know, like a few hundred people. And it was one of those old school uh, classrooms with wooden chairs in this sort of horseshoe fashion. And he's at the front and there's a, you know, a, a huge lab desk. And 
he's talking so quietly, no one can hear him. And I'm about midway, and, and I can't hear him, and I'm thinking, so I wonder if he's saying anything. Imagine a, imagine a professor who's talking in the front of the room, and no one can hear him. At a certain point, <laughs> this guy sitting you know, near me was, kept going, what? What? <laughs> And, and I just thought, oh man, you're going to get busted. And and this so-called professor just you know powered through and and tried to talk a little louder, but not really. Anyway, my point is is that in a lot of fields, it, it definitely gets more complicated, and will definitely weed out people who don't have the talent to understand it. Algebra is much easier to understand than geometry, easier to understand the calculus, easier to understand than advanced or theoretical math or whatever classes I was taking. And, um, and certain people all just aren't going to make it, you know, it's just, it's like a pyramid effect of ability and capacity and, um, whatever. Uh, therapy is not like that. Therapy is, is a block. It's not a pyramid. It's just a, you know, it, you have to have a certain level of ability to be a graduate student. You have to be able to write well enough. You have to be able to read and understand things well enough, but, the model in the education programs, and I, and I have contact with many programs, and they're all basically the same. I've never heard any program that's different than this, unless you go to like a, like actually at the University of Washington, the clinical uh, um, psychology program is kind of like this. It is kind of like a pyramid in that because it is basically, but it's not a clinical, it's not a therapy uh, program. It's a research program, and at the top of the pyramid, you get the grant dollars and like Mar- the Marshall Linehan's and the, uh, who's that memory expert at UW? She gets called on t- for Elizabeth, somebody. Yeah. Forensic. And she, her, her big thing is that she's done research is that eyewitness testimony is extremely unreliable. You know, they'll, they do these experiments on people. They'll show them a scene and then they'll do something other, some other activity for five minutes, and then they'll ask them a bunch of questions, and they'll prime them, and they'll be like, "So when the red car hit the blue car, uh, what happened?" And there was no red car, and then that encodes it into your head, and then later on they're like, "What color was the car?" And they'll be like, "Oh, it was red," even though the car was was like gray or something. And they've done multiple, you know, replications. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, so she gets called on the stand and says, like, look, just because this eyewitness said they saw a red car and just because they they said they saw the plaintiff do this or that, uh, you should, as a jury, you should take this with a grain of salt because uh, memory is malleable. And, and let's, let's look at how the prosecutors actually primed some of these witnesses and blah, blah, blah. And cool. and so she's at the University of Washington. Yeah, She's world-renowned. She's probably, she, I'm guessing, the, you know, she's at the top of that field in terms of memory and forensics and court and eyewitness and all that kind of stuff. Well, in order to get there, you have to basically work all week long on one thing and you've got to network. Well, it's a political thing. You, you have to be extremely smart. You have to know the right people. You have to publish like 10 things a, a year. You've, you've got to be married to this career the way that Marshall Linehan has been, you know, as I'm imagining anyway. I think most of the pro- professors at the U have this kind of uh, style that you're describing. Right. And God bless them because yeah. we need people like that. And so if you go to that program, then it's going to be like, a, anyway, but programs, normal clinical mental health counseling programs, they're not like that. They're training professionals. It's basically a vocational school. Um, it's a vocational school to train you to do a particular job. It's not a high-minded, you know, um, high-competitive sort of situation. It's, it's, you know, when you go to a plumbing school, I'm guessing they don't, they're not trying to weed out the, you know, the shitty ones. Or when you're going to learn how to be a chef or something, I'm just guessing. Anyway, the point is, is that um, it's not that hard. The and, program wants you to succeed. Yeah, they want you, they literally want you to succeed because as I do, I want if, even if you're a bad student if i think you can actually do a good job to help human beings on this planet then i would feel like crap if i got in the way of of 
one more person who is desperately needed in our society to actually help people or to try to help people, you know? I like thinking about it, like the big picture. That's right. cool. Right. So so if you can't write fantastically, but I think you're going to do a good job or or you're a slow learner, but I think you can eventually learn, <laughs> like, you know, I don't want to get in the way. And And I find that even professors who don't have that attitude, um, you know, they're basic. <laughs> if anything, Sean, clinical training programs are too nice. They, they graduate too many of their students. So it, they're, they're too easy in my, in my, I actually, and me and other colleagues, we, one of the things that we we talk about frequently is how to support instructors in their efforts to flunk the occasional student who actually is way below the threshold. Uh, all too often we'll get someone that will be mid or late program and we will have realized that this 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 individual student it's really a one out of a hundred students or something will have somehow passed every class that they should not have passed because each micro step along the way the professor was like well i don't want to be that person to flunk this person and you know maybe someone else will flunk them in the future. You know, someone else will catch this and, you know, cause I don't want to deal with it or I don't oh, feel supported or diffusion of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to get in trouble if I, if I pass them, whereas if I flunk them and they complain, you know, yeah. that could cause a problem for me. And so, right. So I'll just pass them. So if anything, Sean, and this is true across all programs, I I've seen this in anecdotally, all the programs I've had contact with that, that they're, they're too nice. So Sean, uh, <laughs> That is to say what Bob was saying in a much uh, shorter way, which is um, uh, let us give you a big podcast hug and say everything is going to be okay. Most likely. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I'll say is that you should work. The, the thing that I see in a lot of graduate students that I think they could work better on prior and in the beginning of their program is the issue of self-care. Many therapists, I think, fit a profile, but really just Americans in general. We tend to deny our needs and not know our needs and feel shitty about asking for help. And we also believe that if you're going to become a professional, you have to act like a professional and you have to be able to withstand things and be strong, so to speak, which is a complete um, nonsensical statement there's no such, you know, it'd be like, I should be, you know, oh, a car is about to fall on my head. I need to be strong enough to hold it up. You know, no one's like, you're not going to hold that car up. That's not humanly possible. I'm here to tell you, it's not humanly possible to go through graduate school and become a therapist. But graduate school even just by itself is extremely stressful in therapy. Maybe a lot of graduate schools are, I don't know that you cannot and will not and no one ever has been quote unquote strong enough to withstand that stress without having a pretty robust self-care system. And whenever I talk about this, you know, I'll be like, you know, what's your self what are you going to do for self-care? And what a lot of people go to are things like, well, I like to go hiking. And then I'm like, what else? They're like, oh, well, I don't know. You know, hiking. I like listening to music sometimes. And I'm like, that's not going to fucking cut it. <laughs> Unless you go hiking every day, which God bless you if, if you're doing that. But I'm guessing you go hiking, especially in graduate school, once every quarter, you know, once every few months, once every month. You need, you need self-care every day. You need, you, and this is what I tell people is like if you don't have someone that you can download to narcissistically for one hour a day, then you're going to come apart. So you, there's going to be consequences. There'll be consequences anyway. But you need you might not vent every day for an hour, but you need that option. It's often your spouse or a best friend or something. And what I tell people is that uh, you know up until this point, in all likelihood, as a as a you know someone who's been interested in counseling, you've been that person to listen to other people. You know, you've been the nice listener. And what I tell them is, you have to now cultivate and demand and tell people that the script is going to be flipped now that you'll listen fine, but you're also going to be the one talking. You're also going to be the one to make other people listen. And, you know, some of us listener types tend to attract talkers and people who don't like to listen. 
And so sometimes your relationships ha- have to shift or you have to cultivate new or other relationships that will uh, withstand you venting one hour a day, whether that's with your therapist or your best friend or, you know, you have a blog or whatever, just some kind of way of getting stuff off your chest. Do you agree with this, Bob? I do. Did you do that in graduate school? Did you have someone to talk to? I mean, I guess you and I talked. We talked a lot. But other people? Uh, I tend to be on the listening end of things, but I've been a client. I've been a client in therapy for 28 years, off and on, mostly on. Would it have been possible to survive, quote unquote, if you didn't have a therapist in graduate school? Possible, yeah. It would have been possible. I would have been okay. I'm an okay writer, and you know, I can do all that stuff. Would it have been optimal? No. In fact, do we want to recommend to Sean that he find a personal counselor if he doesn't already have one? Yeah, absolutely. When I hear about people who aren't in therapy while they're in graduate school, I deeply worry about them. I wonder about people that want to be therapists who have never been a client. Right. What is that? Yeah. I, the, what I think of it, it, so after interfacing with hundreds of students, I've realized that there are many paths to becoming a therapist. And yours and my path was similar, a little different, but similar in that we had been in therapy and we were wanting to do that. We were like, ooh, that, I want to be in a room with people and talk to them and, and that's a, it's a calling and I, I feel like I could be good at it and I like the lifestyle or whatever it is. And there are a lot of people that are like that, but there are, there are some people who come to the uh, path or the decision to enter graduate school to eventually become a clinician who have never been in therapy and they uh, like psychology. I mean, I, it's a total minority, but I have interfaced, I've talked to some people who, um, I mean, I hate to say this, but a lot of them are younger who are, they're just, it seems like they're just kind of shooting in the dark, you know, and which is fine. Yeah, right. What are you going to do? I mean, I was pretty young and kind of shooting in the dark, but got lucky with actually choosing a profession that I did like. Cause I was, I had a pretty distorted view of what a therapist was and it's a wonder if it was too far off the mark. So I thought therapy, yeah. I, thought, I thought therapists were more of a dick to their clients. <laughs> you know, like... Did you have one that was a dick? No, but, I mean, he wasn't... Sup- My first therapist wasn't super warm and fuzzy. I'll oh, give okay. you that. But, but I had a vision that therapists that therapy was an exercise of confronting people, essentially. Oh, how being, awful. Yeah, being smart, you know, catching people. Yeah. Uh, Caught you, you know, that kind of thing. And and I and that's a common misconception of therapy, so it's not like I was strange in that way. But it's a wonder. It, it's, I, it's just lucky. So that's, you know, when I first, when I, be, when I decided to become a therapist, at least part of my mind was thinking like, that's what I want to do. Well, you wanted to be helpful. You just thought that this was the mode. Yeah. That's a nice way of putting it. The bad way of putting it is I was narcissistic and wanted to yell at people and be smart. You know, you love the N word. <laughs> uh, and uh, luckily when I realized what therapy actually was, I liked it even more. You yeah. know, it's just so much, it's so, it just feels so much better the real way that therapy is. And it's so... I could imagine being your client. I think being your client would be a very warm experience. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. And you too. Well, I've been your friend forever, so, you know, I know you. I talk probably a shit ton more with you than I do with my clients. Oh, that's good, though. You know, you don't want to be talking too much when you're... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I tell uh, interns is that when I listen to their tapes and, or when they're in my applied family therapy class and they're doing like practice role plays and stuff. Um, I, I say this to both the role player, to the role playing clients and also to the therapist, which is the average session that I have with clients is I, if I didn't say anything, it wouldn't really be noticed. You know, it clients sit down on my couch and, they want to talk for a full hour because they have a lot of things to say and they, and they want to, they, you know, occasionally if I'm particularly quiet or they're particularly, 
wanting to get my feedback or something, you know, they'll ask me a question. But if, if I just sit back with most of my clients, they'll just, they'll just talk and talk and talk and talk. And, and there's a lot of therapeutic value to that. I find that it's even more therapeutic to occasionally interject and challenge and this kind of thing. I should think so. But even then, I'm still saying word count 1% the amount of words in a session, you know, hopefully anyway. Occasionally, couples therapy, gets I get a little bit more wordy, you know, because of just, I think, the nature of helpful couples counseling, you know. Yeah, man. Um, you got to be more active. Yeah. So I say this to the role-playing people because I'm like, look, you should be talking nonstop. Because a lot of role plays, when people do role plays in graduate school, the you know I'll say, okay, you two role play a couple, or you two role play a teenager and a mom or something. And the role players will sit down and go like, um, yeah, uh, we're having trouble, period. <laughs> and then like the, the role-playing therapist is, now has to do so much work. Right. And it puts them into this really weird position where it's just like, if I saw a client do that and for myself, I would be like, well, you don't want therapy because you just, you're just plopping down and like throwing out these random statements. Like you're not giving me anything. You're not, you don't have any energy around this. This is an unrealistic portrayal of what a client would look like. Exactly. I think is part of your point. And it makes it really hard to demonstrate or to practice therapy, you know, techniques and stuff. And so, and then I also tell interns, look, if you're talking a lot, something's either wrong with the client or something's wrong with you because um, you know, they could totally be something wrong with the client in terms of the client doesn't really want help or is really shut down or whatever. Yeah. You know, it could be a, a you know resistance or just some other understandable thing, right? Quote unquote, wrong with them. But um, it and or you as a therapist feel like it's good therapy when you're just yammering at your clients all the time. You oh. know. Um, anyway, uh, so my point is is that. Um, you need self-care, so you could get a jump start on that prior to graduate school and then in the beginning. Um, I teach a class for students at Antioch first quarter, and inevitably week five, everything starts to fall apart. And I tell people week one, I'm like, so by week, f- so right now you're probably feeling like you can handle this, and you feel like you know you got you're under control. You know you, you're a smart person. You've you've managed to get good grades in your bachelor's degree. You got good grades in high school. Uh, you, you know, you're a smart cookie. And Successful student. Yeah. yeah. You, you got into a graduate school. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. And, uh, and you know, you know how to be organized. You know how to keep a calendar. You know, y- you got your pencil holder. You know, everything's going good. Um, graduate school in, in a therapy program is not like anything you've ever done before in all likelihood. Yeah. It certainly has an academic element to it, but it is much more emotional. It's much more introspective. It will touch upon, if you have any insecurity, it's going to be touched upon. <laughs> if you have any kind of trauma, it's going to be touched upon, frankly. And, and you might have traumas touched upon that you didn't even know existed, you know, and I'll even self-disclose my own path on that, you know, just like, um, it, I'm still discovering traumas, <laughs> you know, 21 years into the profession, I'm still realizing things about myself that should be obvious, but of course it makes sense as to why I would wall myself off to that or why it would not lend itself to easily being seen or something. But anyway, so I tell people by week five, some of the things are going to come to roost and you're going to feel it and you're going to lose sleep and you're going to have headaches and you're going to be in a bad mood and you're going to want to, you're going to want to drop out and, and you're going to feel like a failure and um, in all likelihood, you know. And so if you don't get your shit in order now, you are going to suffer for a long time, because longer than necessary, because when the shit hits the fan week five, you're not going to have the resources to suddenly cultivate a self-care regimen because you're just going to want to sit at home in a dark room with a pizza and cry into your ice cream pint. Do you know what I mean? Literally. So get your shit together so by then at least you'll have a few friends that will know to contact you and like force themselves in on your life when you're upset. You know, I always think about the uh the movie um Stuart Smalley saves his family. Have you seen that movie? No. I love that movie. You know, it was that character on Saturday Night Oh Live. yeah, I remember him. Um uh you're smart enough, you're good enough, you're good enough and, and gosh darn it, people, people like, like you. you. <laughs> 
And they made a movie, you know, it's one of those Lauren Michaels spin-off Saturday yeah. Night Live movies. And it's a it's a really beautiful movie and it's it's really funny. And of course Al Franken is everyone oh. hates now. Oh right? well right. But he um and you know, it's not particularly politically correct because he's kind of he's kind of aping a stereotypical gay guy. But And but, a woo woo therapist. Right. Which which feel free to make fun of all that because sure, right. and he nails it too. Like just all the like he's in twelve step he's in AA and he has sponsors and stuff, but but there's this moment where he's in his room and he's, you know, depressed and sad and he's pizza boxes and Oreos. I think he's eating like just like just sleeves of Oreos. Oh, you know? I love Oreos. And his sponsor and his best friend are at the door and they're they're like, Let us in, let us in. Okay. And that saved him. Yeah, you know, like what would have been what it would have been like if he didn't have those people. Yeah. That's my point. So you need you need you need to cultivate relationships where people invade your life when you're upset. That's the point. I actually have a friend who's going through a bad time right now, and I am being one of those people because nice. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that knows and or is close enough in proximity to do anything about it. And he's doing that. He's isolating. And um, so today I, I've sort of made him it, like agree to let us hang out. You know what I mean? Nice. I could have just been like, well, he does, you know, he's not really responding and who cares? And he'll call me if he needs me, that kind of. Right. Yeah. But, you know, um, he's cultivated a relationship with me to the point where I, you know, I hope I'm going to do some good today or at least I'm going to try, you know, and when I am having a shitty time, he'll do it for me. You know, anyway. Just taking an interest in somebody else is marvelously helpful. Yeah. Which... Uh, speaking of for Sean, I would like to suggest that Sean simply be curious about his own experiences and also about um, what he's learning because he's probably going to be learning stuff that he didn't think was true about people or humans or the human condition. And open-minded is better. Is there a specific example to that that you're ta- thinking of? I remember when I was young and... Uh, single and wanting to date and having this prejudicial view about using the personals. It was back then it was the personals, right? The stranger. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I saw you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, having this prejudice about people who use personal ads to date. You know me, I met my wife on match.com. So <laughs> that shifted, but little shit like that, little closed minded attitudes about what, what, what's proper. What is a, what does a person do? Most of the shit that I came out of my little white suburban Philadelphia homogenized culture doesn't apply to the world mm. or doesn't apply to much of the world. Um, and was a unhelpful limitation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have other examples of that? Well, yeah. All the isms, racism, homophobia, sexism. Uh, Did you run into that in graduate school? Like where you expanded like a specific thing? Yeah, well, continued expanding, like particularly around homophobia. I think that was something I had to shake off. Not, I don't think I was ever bigoted, just scared. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, am, I, am I being an asshole? Am I being a jerk? Am I, am I being homophobic? You know, like all this self-conscious nonsense that, you know, experience helps a person take a breath. So was Gary a part of that for you? Oh, yeah, Gary, right. Yeah, yeah a piece of it, yeah. Yeah. So we, we had a... Uh, so... Bob and I, in our first couple quarters, uh, as everyone did at Antioch back then, we took this class called ProSem, oh, yeah. professional seminar, which was, you know, spanned six months. And the class was only like six students or something. Yeah. And so it was me, Bob, Nanette. Laura. Uh, Remember Laura? Laura and Gary. And then that guy who was listening to the marriage. Oh, my God. We, we had a student who was... Oh, my God. Who was eventually kicked out of the program, he I was. think, who... In the middle of class, while we're sitting in a circle, no desk. So there's, you know, Flora Ostro and six, oh, yeah. student, Flora. six students. And we're talking about uh, empathy and about our own issues and, you know, learning how to be a wise human being and yeah. how to love yourself and love other people. And this guy is listening to the Mariners game on a uh, headphone, yeah. you know, like a one earbud. In my, in my, you know, this was 94, so it would have been, or 95, this would have been... Yeah. Uh, before iPods and stuff. So it must yeah. have been like an old school transistor. Transistor radio. Yeah, with, with, with that white, uh, you know, scraggly little uh, <laughs> wire that goes into one ear, you know. Uh, it's funny to think about how 
uh, things were back then. But yeah, anyway, so transistor radio, and uh, and yeah, he's listening to the. Thought that was okay. Yeah, right. So, uh, but one of the guys in the group was was gay and was out and uh, talked about it, and so that helped uh, you. You're saying, and I'm sure me to relax and not yeah. uh, be so up in our head about interfacing with gay people yeah. and, and, you know, humanizing. It's just like, oh, I see. Because Gary was very much like you and me in a lot of ways. Really like, nice, he felt like He felt like, and we did hang out with him occasionally. Yeah. I feel like you hung out with him more than I did, though, didn't you? I don't remember spending time with him uh, one-on-one like you and I did. I felt like he, you and him knew each other better than I did, than I knew. We might have had some other classes because he was uh, mental health counseling and right. you were family. I was family. Yeah. Right? Um, the other thing I'll tell Sean before we go to break is if you want to read up on APA format, that'll help because in all oh, likelihood yeah. your program uses APA format. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that professors get hung up on and it's not intuitive. And it's it's definitely a learned skill. It's something that... Uh, a lot of I have a lot of students first quarter who, who some so you know in my first quarter class, some students take to it very fast or they knew it already, and some students really just have no idea. And we do have a writing center, and we actually do have writing like remedial classes that we require some students to take. But it's a lot to take in in the first few weeks of graduate school. You know, you're doing a lot of things. And APA format, really, I mean, it took me years to kind of master it, you know, and I still know that I don't really understand it. Because, like, when I had my dissertation published, I the university actually pays for an editor to look it over to make sure that it's up to snuff in terms of APA formatting and, and publishing rules and copyright and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the things that I got back from this editor, I was like, that's APA format. Like there's, it's so specific and there's so many things that, and plus like you're up in your head writing the material. You're not always thinking about, you know, parentheses and commas and stuff, you know, and you can't catch everything. And so the faster you get uh, proficient in American psychological association writing style, the fast, the easier it will be for you in graduate school. Cause again, some instructors will, make it so you won't even pass a class just because of your inability to follow that format, depending. And and one of the shitty things about learning APA format is there's not a lot of good resources. Like there's this main APA format publication that they make every student buy that I find to be extremely... I mean, it, it lays out some things well, but it also lays out other things in really confusing ways where you're just like, you're, you're just, I remember just staring at a page, you know, where it's trying to explain how to cite a podcast or something. And I'm just staring at it and I'm like, I don't get it. Like, how does that, or, um, when you go online, I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I've gone online while I was a graduate student and trying to look up a, a particular way to do something and really just not being able to find the answer. Which, and in today's world, you think it wouldn't be that hard. Google. Yeah, right. You'd think it, Now, maybe by now it's better. I don't know. But anyway, the other thing is um, that I recommend, Sean, and to anyone going to graduate school is really try to make friends with your peers and with, and with your instructors. Oh, instructors too, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, your advisors and, you know, it's staff. Being in graduate school is so intense and um, and so and can be so stressful and isolating that if you have friends, if you feel at home and you feel connected and you feel like you can trust the people around you, it's going to feel so much better. Uh, you know, imagine being in a class where you don't know anyone, you don't trust anyone, the instructor is this distant person, and you're unsure about your assignment, and you're unsure about something you said in class, and you go home and you're like, oh, I, I made a fool out of myself. As opposed to another situation where, you know, you're pretty good friends with everyone, you've hung out with them outside of school, you know, you know that they like you and respect you. Um the the instructor you know well enough to know that they care about you and you say something stupid and you're like well 
but I know that they like me and I know that they know that that wasn't representative of, of me. You are here to learn. Right. And I trust that they're nice people and they're not going to judge me for having said something stupid. And or I am comfortable enough just to raise my hand later in the class and say, I'm sorry for saying something stupid earlier. It's a completely different feeling and you learn so much better is the, you know, another big benefit is uh, learning is facilitated by the way that you feel as a student. And it's both the responsibility of the student and the instructor to create an environment where students can feel safe and supported and good about what is happening around them. There's no reason why a student should be anxious. I um, tell this to all my students when I'm, when they're starting out is that if you are anxious, it's, you're probably normal, but if you're overly anxious, then that is a failing of me as a professor. I have failed you if you are overly anxious. So I'm going to do my best, but I also need you to know when you're overly anxious and to tell me and to let me know, or try to rework your narrative so that you're not overly anxious. Cause, um, and because some instructors actually have a value of making people overly anxious. I've heard some instructors, they're just like, well, you know, if they're not, if they're not scared, you're not doing something, you know, if you're not doing your job, if they're not scared, you know, and I'm just like, what, why? <laughs> like what kind of weird power play do you have? hazing or something again we're we're trying to help people to help other human beings why do you want to get in that get in the way of that (laughs) and again everyone's probably going to graduate or the vast majority of the students are going to graduate so you know we're not again if we were trying to weed out the wussies then okay but we're not you know most everyone's going to graduate some people are going to flunk out sure but it's pretty rare but success is not predicated on somebody else's failure like it would be in like competitive medical school or right Wherever. Right. If if there are a hundred med students and five positions, then yeah. then yeah, maybe weed out twenty of them because they can't hack the yeah. pressure, you know. But there are I, everyone who graduates from our program gets a job. Every single human being who graduates from our program, and we have we have um, at any given time now. I think we have. See what are we getting up to? I th- we're getting up to in our program. We're getting up to like close to two hundred students at any given time. So no that, kidding. Yeah, it's like ballooning, and and that's just our program. The M eight, the all the psychology programs. We're talking probably about five hundred people or something, and so we probably have each year like about hundred people graduate, and so all those people get jobs. Now, occasionally, like very occasionally, some of them don't get a job, but I would imagine it's not because of their inability to get a job it's probably because they just decided not to do it or they don't want those kinds of jobs you know what i mean they they don't they don't want to work at an agency or something and they discovered late it doesn't pay very well right or the work was too stressful for them or something mm. uh they there's there's a lot of jobs for at agencies you know and uh, and they don't pay that well so it's not like it's a big mystery that you know so it'd probably be good for Sean to be prepared for that, to recognize that he's going to have debt probably, and he isn't going to make very much money most likely. And it's going to be beans and weenies for a while. Beans and weenies. Man, I, when I was in graduate school, I don't think I could afford beans and weenies. I think I ate top ramen. Yeah. I remember eating, I would buy French bread, what we call French bread, but it's just like soft baguette bread. Yeah. And I would put cheese on it and pizza sauce. That sounds awesome. And put it in the oven. And it was like, you know, they were like um, little pizzas, I guess. And uh, I had a whole system for like how long it needed to be in there and stuff. And if you put too much pizza sauce on it, it would like, or a a spaghetti, it was spaghetti sauce, sorry, not pizza. Pizza sauce is too expensive. Because, you know, ragu pizzas or spaghetti sauce, you can get like for a dollar fifty or something, like a big jar. Or so, it was some kind of cheaper. Are you saying we should do a whole episode on this? <laughs> what did you eat in graduate school? Beans and weenies? Oh, no, I ate cereal. Cereal. What kind of cereal? Every kind of cereal. Like Cocoa Puffs? Oh, yeah, Cocoa Puffs, Fruit Loops. 
uh, what's that one? Life. And what's that other one? Honeycombs. Oh, yeah. Captain Crunch. Raisin Bran. Checks. Checks. Wheat. Wheat checks. Wheat checks. Not corn, not rice. Mm. Yeah, I ate a lot of cereal back then, which is actually kind of expensive. Yeah. 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 But that's what I ate. But on the scale of things, not very expensive. Well, right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember eating that. I remember, what else did I eat? I, I mean, I ate Top Ramen. I ate beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a break. What do you say? Yeah. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Also, if you have trouble accessing all of our patron exclusive episodes after you become a patron, email me if you have trouble because sometimes people have trouble with the feed and getting access to that. So you want to email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or go to psychologyinseattle.com and go to the Contact Us tab and just send me an email from there. Also, join the Facebook fan group. That is a so we have two pages. We have the Facebook regular page, which is the one I run, and uh, we also. But there's a more lively group, which is the Facebook fan psychology in Seattle group, which is not run by me. It's run by two patrons. We got April and famous patron Lyndon, and they run that Facebook fan group. It's mainly run by April right now. What's they, a famous patron? Uh, so famous patron Lyndon, he got his nickname, um, years ago because he emailed these really complicated questions and just seemed to be one of those super fans, you know, yeah, who, gotcha. who sort of knew the trivia and blah, blah. And he actually flew out from Ireland to our show earlier this year no shit yeah and and so he and then he suggested i think he's like you should have a fan group and i was like what's that and he's like well let me let me i'll do it for you essentially is what he said and then um he's been having some time constraints and so he asked me to ask someone else and so we asked one of our other super fans april who is now in charge of the fan group. But it's a fun group where, you know, the community can communicate with each other and share things. And and I don't ever look at it because I want people to feel free to say whatever they want to, you know. Uh, just, it, you know, because partially to self-preserve my own self-esteem and, and, <laughs> and partially just, you know, just to give people a place where they can say whatever they want to and not have to worry about my thin skin. Mm. Also, know that, you know, apps, phone apps for the podcast, for whatever stupid reason, we can't figure out a way to have it list all of our episodes. By now, we have like close to 750 episodes or something. And it at this point in the middle of 2018, your phone app probably only has 300 of those episodes. So more than half the episodes you don't have access to. Unless you go to our website at psychologyinseattle.com, then you can listen to every single episode. It's all, every single episode, all 700 you know, plus episodes are on our website. And so uh, at this point, that's where you want to go for, for archiving. And some of these episodes, these archived episodes, aren't even that old. They're like from just like a few years ago because we make, we make about, we make, let's see, about 150 episodes a year. So yeah, so more than two years ago, um, these would be archived. And some of these, some of the episodes from, you know, two or three years ago, I think are some of our best. So do I need to be a patron to access them? No, you can, you can just go to the website. Uh, if you go to the website as a patron, you can access the episode. There's a page for the episodes that are, uh, often requested that are older, you know, like deep dives and this kind of thing. But, um, so Yeah. We're also potentially working on a phone app ourselves so that you could download that onto your phone and then that will have access to every episode. But Berto, Umberto's looking into that. Also, we have our 10-year anniversary show coming up August 11, 2018 at the North City um, uh, Bistro. Oh. And so uh, are you going to come to that, Bob? Yeah, I am. So people get to meet Bob there. August 11, 2018. You know North City Bistro. I love that place. I know, right? Okay. Um, so let's go into another email here. We have... I wanted to go over this one. Okay. Anonymous patron. Uh, 
says, what do we do when a therapist dies or becomes seriously ill? What happens to their clients and their client files? Do they have a system in place to notify their clients of their death or illness? Do, do they have a colleague who can take over at least temporarily? I have a friend who used, who used to be a therapist. He said most therapists have no system in place. Oftentimes, it is the therapist's spouse who ends up going through their files. I know someone whose therapist didn't show up for an appointment one day. The person called and texted, and the therapist that, or texted the therapist but received no response. They continued to call their therapist over the next few days, but the calls went straight to voicemail. Eventually, they found a different phone number and the therapist's website on the therapist's website and called that number. The therapist's wife answered and told her that the therapist had suffered a heart attack. My, my therapist has cancer, and I basically live in constant fear that I'll show up for an appointment one day and he just won't be there. And I'll call and text him and get no response. I have nightmares about it. Anyway, I think it's important for therapists to at least think about this subject. Thoughts? What do you think, uh, Bob? I hope this person will speak with her therapist about her concerns or his concerns and um, find out what the plan is. I think that's completely reasonable. Then my other thought is, I think I'm your go-to if you die. Right. So it's totally true that one... I'm you, you are my go-to, Bob. Uh, if I die or become, and we've worked this out, that's my system. But absolutely, to answer your question, anonymous patron, is all therapists should have a system uh, from day one. It shouldn't be something that you wait until you're seventy-five and say, like, well, you know, maybe I'll start thinking about it now. It you could die at any time. You could fall ill at any time. You could get in a car accident at any time. You could fall off a cliff while you're hiking. You know, as Americans, we don't like to think about that. We like to think we're invincible and nothing's ever going to happen. Young people think that way anyways. Right. Uh, Newsflash, you're going to die one day. (laughs) And if you're still practicing, um, you know, something's got to be done about that. And so um, you need to have a system. Uh, It's considered a professional duty. It's not just something that you're, you know, it's not a favor you're doing. It's, It's similar to having confidentiality or having locks on your files. It's a professional duty that you have a system. It's not usually talked about because, again, our society likes to deny the possibility that uh, newsflash you're going to die or get into an accident. Um, it, it's, it's unethical to abandon your client. That's what it has to do with, even in death. So now, if you die, it's not your fault. Well, maybe it would be your fault. But the point is, is that... Your uh, duty doesn't end it. Right. Your duty doesn't end there. And you can't... Uh, and ab- ab- abandoning a client is unethical, but also not uh, accounting for the possibility of abandonment is also unethical. So, um, so you need to have what we call a professional will. So we all know what a will is, right? Is a... A document that uh, might have instructions on what to do after you die with your body, with your assets, with um, things you, you might care about, or um, uh, you know other you know who gets who's in charge, all that kind of stuff. You you want a will to talk about that because it's your wishes, or even like um, if I'm brain dead, don't. You know, just just let me go, that kind of stuff. It's so helpful. You talk to anyone who works in hospice or related fields, and they will say, like, when there's a will, it just makes it go by so much easier. When there's no will, when there's no instruction, everyone is left wondering what to do. And, and, and you have a bunch of people who have power and will have different opinions on what to do. You know, should we pull the plug? Should we not? Should we sell the house? Should we not? Should we cremate? Should we bury? Should we, uh, what should we, you know, who should be looking through the client files, that kind of thing? Uh, who should take over the, the clients? Um, all that kind of stuff. Whereas if you just fucking had instructions like a normal person, then it would be completely, I mean, there still might be fights, but it would certainly clear things up. I mean, just getting on the issue of will is that, do you have a will? No. Yeah, I don't have a will. But, I have a professional but, will. <laughs> but I've discussed what to do with my wife okay. many times. 
Okay. Well, that's, you know, it's, that's, that's uh, the spirit, right? Yeah. And so um, the, when someone is, you know, on their deathbed, essentially, and you have a, a situation where there's a 1% chance that there's brain activity that can be revived or something, but there's a 99% chance that there isn't. And you're on a feeding tube, you're on a breathing tube, you know, you're not conscious. It's been, it's been a month, you've been in a coma and there's a, there's no will every, you know, the physicians, the family, everyone's like, well, should we pull the plug? And, and then you're like, well, I don't know if there's a 1% chance. And so there's all now that's all normal. There's nothing wrong with that because it's a horrible position to be in. And then at some point you pull the plug, you know, in some scenarios and you feel terrible. You feel guilty. It's like, you know, you know, you know, sometimes. Whereas if there's a will and it says, look, if there's only a 1% chance, just let me go. In fact, it's a loving act. If you just let me go, uh, I'm sad that I'm leaving you and I'm sad and I'm sure you'll, I hope you're sad that, that I'm leaving you, but uh, let's be real. And I, I'm going to die one day and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with my life. And if, if I'm, you know, if there's very little chance of getting me back, like just let me go. I'll, I'm, I'll be happier in the next realm. Imagine having that message and just, and then you pull the plug, how better it would feel, right? how you would just have this release of this burden, you know, you're not left guessing as to what the person would want. And so, so the same goes for a professional will and there are samples on the internet. So you just, just Google professional will for a therapist. Bob is my person. Uh, we haven't established ex- Do you know what, have I told you what you're supposed to be doing? There's instructions somewhere. Oh, okay. Well, it, there's standard things like, um, my family will contact you if you don't already know. And then you come to my office right here and the keys. Oh yeah, I did tell you, I did give you instructions. So, so there are two things that need to, you need access to. And I, you're a therapist, so you would be able to figure it out. One is, is my physical files, which are right here. And so you need the keys for that. And it's all labeled by clients. You know, it it would be easy to figure out. The second thing is access to my computer. You need you need all my passwords. You need to be able to get into my my records on my computer. You need to be you need to be able to get into the uh, my insurance websites, and you need to be able to contact my malpractice. You know, you need to wrap up all that kind of stuff. And so, so I have a safe deposit box that has a list of all of my passwords that I typically use. And so you just have to cycle through like 10 passwords to figure out which one it was. And every four months I update that written document or that typed out document. And so, so you need keys to my file and key and access to my safe deposit. And so I just put your name with the bank and with my safe deposit box and you know, it'll be a process and it, it won't, be easy you know it'll you'll have to probably spend a few days kind of yeah. figuring all that out but at least there's a path you know well did we talk about my rate <laughs> <laughs> well you know you'll have access to my bank records so you know you just got to transfer <laughs> I, I don't care i'll be gone so you know <laughs> sift through uh whatever you want as long as you take care of my debt too i suppose <laughs> So, so that's, that's what needs to happen. Um, <clears throat> so the questions that your professional will needs to answer, which is first off, where are the copies of the professional will? So where, where is it? If it's on your computer and your computer has a, uh, a password, then it doesn't do any good. It needs to be somewhere like, for example, I just gave Bob my professional will and said, here it is. And I gave it to my family as well. And um, maybe it's like in a, it's easily searchable under, you know, Gmail or something, just like, you know, professional will, and then you find the attachment or whatever. Um, so you need to know where it is. And then this, the other question. Well, I have it pinned to a bulletin board with a countdown clock. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha, 
<laughs> um, the other question that needs to be asked and answered in your professional will is who will take charge? Who is the person or persons who will be designated as to, you know, you can't just say this is what I want to have happen without saying who's going to do that. It's sort of like when you're doing CPR, you point to an individual and say, call 911. Everyone's going to be freaking out if you die or become in- incapacitated. And everyone's going to be like, is that my job? So you have to identify a person or persons. And the other thing is, how will they be notified? You know, because typically you're going to want another therapist to take over because they're going to understand how to read your files and all that stuff. And plus, they're bound to confidentiality. And um, I mean, you can't have your spouse do it, is the point. Uh, you could have like a lawyer do it, I suppose, but it'd be so much easier if you found a colleague to do it. Um, so, how will they be notified? Do, you know, does your family know to call that person and, and know how to do that? How will they have access to your files and to your schedule? Your schedule is like the biggest thing because those people have to be notified right away. So how do they have access to your schedule? For Bob, he will get my password to my Gmail, and that has my you know calendar, which has all my client names. And then you'd have to all you'd have to just go is go to my physical files, look up the phone number, and boom. Um, and how will the colleague be reimbursed for their time? Is another. As another question. Oh, I was just kidding. I don't expect... No, it should be. I mean, it. they could refuse or something, but it it's a professional service. And it, again, it could take a long time. Uh, you know, in a death, and it's a friend, in all likelihood, you're just going to do it as a favor to the family. But say you're going through cancer treatments or you or you have occasional heart attacks or something, and it's something that happens periodically or something. It, you become temporarily incapacitated and then you can return. It's right. Era. And you, you, you can't even think straight enough to actually even call your clients. Yeah. Then in that realm, I think it's more of a professional service that is depending on the situation. Yeah. At the very least it should be offered. You shouldn't just put in there like, well, you know, they'll do it for free because they like me. It should be at least offered as a, a courtesy um, and or a, you know, and it should be legitimate, you know, because colleagues should be reimbursed. I mean, you know, Bob's not worth that much money. So I, I, will, I mean, Seattle is a $15 an hour minimum wage. So I guess I'll give you that. <laughs> I was just hoping for a six pack. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how are they going to access your voicemail and your email? And should there be an an attorney to oversee the whole thing. That's another question that should be. What's the purpose of that? You think to mitigate any liability, uh, and lawyers are certain lawyers are, they specialize in death and in wrapping up people's affairs and making sure that wills are followed and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, sometimes an attorney is a good person to, to be there. Do you have one? No. Or one in mind? No, I do not. Yeah. Although I do have a colleague that I could identify, but he's, you know, older than me, so I guess that wouldn't make a lot of sense at this point. But, <laughs> but that's that's a lesser of a question. Yeah. The, main, the main thing is, is you know, um, where is it, where is the professional will, and who's going to take charge, and how will they get access to your files? And just saying, like, well, they'll access it somehow is not sufficient. I mean, you have to... They have to know your current password to your to your email account because you might change it, you know what I mean? And they need to know where that is. And you also don't want to just leave it as a sticky note on your computer because then anyone can get access. So it ha- so it has I mine's elaborate, but it makes the most sense to me. It's like um you go to my safe deposit box where no one else can see and that's where all the passwords are, you know. Anyway, so, I think I think your point though is that this is all in service of uh, timely and compassionate care for clients. That that's really the point of all this is that these people who are going to suffer, um, you know, that we mitigate that way, we protect them as best we can. Yeah, and just how awful it would be. Oh my god! You know, um, and how easy it is to you know set up. It's not hard. It right. just you know takes a couple hours of of thought and writing and asking and that's it. And then you're done, you know, yeah. and then, you know, you set it and forget it really. Um, you'd have to, you know, make sure that it stays up to date over time. But, right. um, because let's be honest, you know, you're older than me and you'll, you'll you know, <laughs> <Likely>. <laughs> and I'm Asian. So, you know, 
uh, <laughs> won't that be weird? You know, like to think one of us will go before the other one. It is weird. It's. It, I start thinking about that a lot. It's like, you know, my siblings, you know, other family members. It's like, sure. who am I going to go first? Right. There's four of you, right? Yeah. Are yeah. they Are they going to go first, or you know, between you and me, it's like. There will be a time when one of us will be alive and the other won't. Unless we both, unless we do a murder-suicide situation between you and me, you know? I don't love you that much. <laughs> so, are you third out of four? Yeah. Oh, my God. I never realized that. So am I. Yeah. Yeah. You have a, do you have a younger sister? No, older brother, older sister and a younger brother. Was it brother, sister, you? Yeah, same as me. Oh, my God. Yeah. We're like, how older are your siblings? Oldest is... Uh, me from you. 55. So four years older than me. And the youngest is uh, a couple, two and a half years younger than me. Okay. Yeah. Mine are much more spread out. My older brother and sister are like six years older than me. And then uh-huh. my younger brother is six years younger. So I was, I was like Ooh. kind of like an only child yeah. um, at a certain point in my life. You know, I remember thinking of my older brother and sister as, as super old. You know, when I was three and they were 10, yeah, right. they just seemed ancient. To right. Me. And when I was, um, then when my little brother came along, he was so much younger than me. It just, he didn't feel like a, a sibling in the way that a lot of people have where they're, you know, there was never a point when any of us were fighting over the phone, if that makes any sense <laughs> or, or the car or something, you know, it was, it was spread out enough where. Um, none of, or at least for me anyway, I didn't have to compete in that way. Your younger listeners won't understand what it means to be fighting over the phone. I know. I thought about that and I thought about, um, whether or not I should mention that. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. We had one phone line, but two physical phones. Yeah. Me too. One in the kitchen, one in the basement. And I, you know, I just can't, I, I don't understand how we, and we didn't have call waiting for a long time either. We didn't have an answering machine. Right. Yeah. We didn't have an answering machine. Either, but there was no need for an answering machine yeah. because someone was always home. Someone was home, and they always answered the phone. So, right. but what's weird to me is that I, in high school and in junior high, I, early high school, I would talk on the phone all night long. I mean, that you know, just think of teenagers and Snapchat and Facebook and stuff. Yeah. It was just the phone just back the phone. then. It was the only way. And so I would talk on the phone for hours and hours and I basically monopolized the phone and it's just like, but I feel like people just didn't call each other very often back then, you know? Like I, when I think about, we, we had relatives who lived, you know, in other places where it was long distance and we would call them like once a year. Long, because it was long distance. (laughs) Right. But it couldn't have been that expensive. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't. Um, wonderful to have to pay long distance fees, but I'm, but I'm guessing it wasn't that much. I ran up a bill talking to a woman who lived, uh, uh, someone I was dating or sort of dating long distance, just lived within the state of Pennsylvania, maybe 200 miles away from where I was. And, you know, young people talk a lot, $200 phone bill. Yeah. You know, in addition to, you know, the regular cost of running a phone and, you know, that was a lot of money. Right. And brutal. Whereas today... My phone bill is $200, just baseline. Do yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But you can call anybody you want and talk as long as you want. Right. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a weird development in right. today's world where there's no such thing as long distance. Is that true for landlines? They don't have long distance? No, I think, I think landlines still have long oh, distance. Oh, it's so weird. Yeah. But I think some, long di- I think some landline plans will add on and as a benefit. Like a block yeah. charge or something. Or just free long distance. Free long distance, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing about long distance, if I understand it right, was that in the in the old days, it was an expense to connect different, um, different networks, essentially. Yeah. And you couldn't have... If you had too many people talking on those lines, it, wouldn't, it, it would break the capacity or something. Yeah. And so... They had to some, it was essentially a toll bridge, you know, essentially yeah. it's like, well, we can't have, if everyone was allowed to do this, like people wouldn't be able to get through. And so we have to charge a toll to like bring the traffic down a little bit. And, um, but it was kind of arbitrary because it was like, 
it didn't cost them any more money to connect you between New York and San Francisco. It was just, they were just trying to keep the traffic down because they didn't have the bandwidth, you know? And hey, then I could make money doing it. And they can make money doing sure. it. Right. It's like a, it's, they can act like it's a premium or something. Right. But, and then when the internet came out, when cell phones came out, they could have done the same thing. You know, they could have, they could have, but I remember an early differentiation for them was like, Free long distance, and I and I think that was because in the early days of, of and I could be getting this all wrong, by the way, but this is just my impression was that when cell phones first came out, cell phones actually had a hard time convincing people to actually get them. Now today we're like, of course, right? It's like it's obvious that yeah. cell phones are better, but I remember in the beginning people were like, it sounds shittier. You need to charge it. They're expensive. They. Um, you lose signal a lot. Remember that whole thing? Like, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? That was a thing. Yeah. Like you would just walk down the street and lose signal, you know, because cell towers were infrequent Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of cell shadows. And so I think one of the things that they were trying to do to try to just please, you know, become cell phone consumers was free long distance. I think that was just, if my impression, that was just my impression was that, they were just trying to suck people in, you know. Um, was that your impression? Yeah, and then I think one of the things that happened is the the amount of whatever you call it to transfer voice data is so much smaller than the amount of whatever to transfer, like, you know, visual data that it's just like it costs nothing. Right. Yeah. I'm sure I said that in the most... No, 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 that, that's the way you say it as far as I know. Um and that relates to texting too, because you know. Right. So, so I think they, when texting first came out, they're like, "Ooh, we can charge for this yeah. because people really want it." But it's so ridiculous because the amount of data that is needed to send a text is compared to a phone call is like you know point zero 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 one percent of the amount of data, uh, and then compare that to video, and right. we're talking about just like non-existent, you know. Um, I don't know. We're probably talking out of our ass. and Somewhat. But, it, but we're at the end of the episode, and hey, if you're still with us... <laughs> That's too bad for you. Too bad for you. <laughs> You'll never get that time back. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. You deserve it.